Well, it's that time for us to jump into the Word together. It's actually been quite a while since we've had the privilege together. It's actually been uh, three weeks uh, since we were together on the Lord's Day. Um, we had to cancel church, if you remember, two Sundays ago because of a COVID case. And um, last Sunday, I was unable to make it because I was recovering from COVID. What a mess, right? But we recovered, and we're ready to dive into our ongoing study of Hebrews chapter 8. So take your Bibles, find your way to Hebrews 8. Uh, we won't be there long today. I'll explain in just a few moments. Because it's been a while since we've been together, I need to give a brief review, obviously, of, of what we've covered so far uh, in chapter 8, so that we don't kill the flow of this very important passage. We are in a major section in the book of Hebrews that I am calling Jesus is superior to Aaron. And that started way back in chapter 4. And the author starts in earnest about Jesus' priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in chapter 7. Now he's proving to his Jewish Christian audience, if you remember, that Jesus' priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood that Aaron established. Do you remember that? Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, and the Levitical priesthood is after the order of Aaron. And we followed the writer's arguments up to this point, and we found them all very sound, very logical, very persuasive. But when we come to chapter 8, we find two outstanding arguments here. Two outstanding arguments. In fact, and I said this when we began chapter 8 three weeks ago, for all of the arguments that the writer has made so far for the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, including the ones that he will go on to make in chapters 9 and 10, I believe the foundation for them all, the common idea that runs through them all, is something that has to do with heaven itself. To be more precise, the central question that chapter 8, what makes Jesus' priesthood superlative, or the, the ideal, or the best, turns on two heavenly realities. Two heavenly realities. And we examined already, to some depth, the first of these heavenly realities in verses 1 to 5. And it's that Jesus is a priest of a heavenly tabernacle. Do you remember that? He is a priest of a heavenly tabernacle, not an earthly one. The second heavenly reality on which all of these arguments turn is in verses 6 through 13. And that occupies our attention now. It is that Jesus is the administrator of a heavenly covenant. Jesus is an administrator of a heavenly covenant. Now, those two items makes Jesus, uh, make Jesus' ministry superlative, superior to anything that has replicated the heavenly ministry on earth. So what's so special about a tabernacle and a covenant made in heaven? How does the fact that they are items of heaven make them and Jesus' ministry superlative? Well, it's because everything made in heaven is better. The best, in fact. That's where the figure of speech comes from, right? A match made in heaven. Heaven is the ideal. There is an ideal existence in heaven, and that existence is the model for the Christian life now. 
And it will become reality for all believers when we get there someday. Even everything will be better in heaven. We argued the point last time, I trust successfully, that the Bible defines heaven not simply as a real place, but the most desirable place one could ever be. And it's no surprise that the biblical writers actually use a heavenly existence as a powerful motivation for godly living. Have you noticed that as you read through the, through the Bible? We see, this, we see this rather bearing out in the lives of people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and even Stephen, to name only a few, who all glimpsed a moment of heaven at a critical point in their ministries that confirmed and motivated them to press on. The motivation works out practically this way. When believers truly understand what life will be like for them in heaven, their inclination should be to live that kind of life now on earth. That is also the urging of the New Testament as well. Live according to heavenly kingdom principles, it says. Live out your life on earth as you will live it in heaven someday. That's the message of the epistles. The New Testament means by this simply live redeemed, resurrected lives according to God's will, his divine, eternal will in heaven. See, people who are born again are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And it only makes sense, then, that their thoughts and actions should be governed by kingdom principles, right? Not by earthly principles, not by principles devised in the hearts of men. Our identity is rooted in Christ, who is in heaven. Actually, this is the whole meaning behind the first three verses of Colossians 3. I love this passage. Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's a wonderful passage has a wonderful truth. What does a heavenly lifestyle then look like on earth, we might ask Paul? Well, he tells us in the rest of the book. Here's a quick run-through of the commands for action based on the truth of verses 1 through 3. Are you ready? I'll, I will rip through these commands that go through the entire rest of Colossians. Here we go. Verse 5, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Verse 8, rid yourself of all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene speech from your mouth. 9 and 10, do not lie to one another since you've stripped off the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed, to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. Verse 12, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bear with one another and forgive each other who has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, you must also do. Verse 14, put on love, which is perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule your heart and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do in word, do everything 
And D, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God your Father. Wives, be submissive to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not antagonize your children. Chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it with all with an attitude of thanks, thanksgiving. Five, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And six, keep your speech always with grace, as though seasoned with salt, that, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Are we getting this? Live out lives here in the way that we will live them in heaven someday. That's what it looks like. Train your mind to be thinking holy thoughts because that's what will occupy your mind in heaven. What I'm driving at is this. Because heaven is a real place where God dwells and rules, and we who are born again have a place reserved for us there with Christ, and it is a better kingdom, better than any earthly kingdom, then let's carry on as if we're there now. Now, beloved, this is not a fantasy. Do you hear that? This is not a fantasy. This is not pretend or make-believe. This has nothing to do with the power of positive thinking championed by the late Robert Schuller. That's a fantasy. For that tries to create something positive out of anything negative. But Christians don't ignore negatives in life. In fact, we believe that God very much ordains them for our good to make us more like Christ. So we have nothing to do with that kind of error. We don't pretend to live something that is not true of us. The power of positive thinking is one big lie. It's fantasy. No, what I'm referring to is not a fantasy. What the New Testament clearly teaches is a truth, a reality. The Bible teaches us that we are perfect in Christ positionally. And because that's true, we must strive to live that way now. It's not fantasy. So live what's true of you. Live in accord with your heavenly estate yet to come. Now, I know you know what I mean because your praying is very much directed by this principle, isn't it? I brought this up last time. In Jesus' model prayer in Matthew 6, we find in verse 6 where Jesus instructs us to pray this to God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remember that? We're supposed to pray that God's will in heaven is carried out on earth. That God's eternal decrees that he created in eternity past that would govern human history will indeed come to pass. That's what ought, ought to occupy a lot of our praying. That is what we pray for, God's will in heaven to be done on earth and in our earthly existence. Leon Morris, great New Testament commentator, has a, a, a perfect way of explaining this in his commentary on Matthew. Quote, In heaven God's will is perfectly done now, for there is nothing in heaven to hinder it. And the prayer looks for a similar state of affairs here on earth, end quote. That's perfect. Do you get that? That's what I'm saying. God's rule in heaven is meted out on earth through obedient believers. He rules from heaven in us on earth. So what does this 
talk of heaven and specifically living out our lives on earth as we will live them in heaven someday have to do with our passage? Well, a great deal, actually. In the first five verses of chapter 8, the writer stresses the fact that we that what really makes Jesus' priesthood better than the Levitical priesthood is that everything Jesus is and does is connected to a heavenly sanctuary. And a sanctuary in heaven is superior to any of its copies on earth. Jesus is God. He is divine priest. He carries out an eternal priesthood in heaven before a heavenly sanctuary. The only earthly aspect about any of it is us, its recipients. That's it. It has, the, it has results for us now in our earthly state, but that's all. Now, our study this morning brings us to the second of these heavenly realities that Jesus' ministry makes Jesus' ministry superlative, and that is a heavenly covenant, a heavenly covenant. The chapter introduces for the first time in the book the notion of a covenant. Look at verse 6. This is the only time we're going to look at our our text this morning in Hebrews 8. Verse 6. But now, the writer says, God has obtained, I'm sorry, Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. That's profound. I'm going to open that up for you in the next three weeks. Here, Jesus is the minister of a better covenant. That's what we read. And we'll identify exactly what this covenant is in a few weeks. But we see that it is better. Better than what? Well, better than any earthly covenant that God made with man up to this point. Why? Because it is a covenant that expresses perfectly, are you ready? It expresses perfectly the eternal covenant that reveals God's intention with regard to us, his people. And I'm very excited to get into this with you. I think the proper way to approach this notion of covenant, then, is to pause in our study of Hebrews 8, take a short detour from this text to rehearse the biblical teaching on covenants, or more generally speaking, covenant theology. I cannot stress enough to you just how imperative it is, beloved, that you have a good working knowledge of covenants in the Bible, and not just because it will help you to make sense of Hebrews 8, God's covenant relationship with us is really the essence of our faith. You need to to get that into your brain and, and really think hard about it. It is the essence of the faith. For the next three weeks, then, we're going to lay this out for you. After that, we'll return to the text more informed and ready to understand it. So, So we would do well to pull our exegetical lens back wide again, And consider, as we did last time with the heavenly sanctuary, the significance of this heavenly covenant. Let me say up front, okay, this is not a proper series on covenants. Covenant theology is is a vast subject that would demand much more time than we can certainly give it here in these three messages. So my hope is to give you just enough of an idea of the basic premise of this approach to the Bible so that you can understand 
Hebrews better, but also any further study on the subject of covenants. And if I raise more questions in your mind than I answer, my apologies in advance. There's always that risk when you give simply a survey of a very deep theological concept. I won't be able to help that. But let me assure you, I can assure you, that I won't cause you more harm than good as we go through this little uh, mini-series on covenant. So be encouraged. I've given a great deal of thought as to the best way to ease us into this discussion, and I think it's, uh, it, it's to begin by explaining that the Bible is a sizable book made up of 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books, a grand total of 66 books. And though each book has its own theological purpose, each contributes to the greater purpose of the entire Bible. So, how one approaches the study of Scripture is very important, and that's what covenant theology is concerned with. It is a framework for making sense of the Bible. And there's no question that we need such a framework if we're going to understand a book that is comprised of 66 individual books written over a 1,500-year span, over 40 generations, over 40 authors, in different places, in different circumstances, on three different continents, and in three languages. You need an approach. Sadly, many Christians, including pastors and popular conference speakers, don't have a systematic approach to understanding the Bible. And as a result, they're quite often misled in their interpretation of it. I think this is a serious problem in the church today. I've met people along the way in ministry, perhaps you have as well, who want nothing to do with this theology stuff, as they put it. I just read my Bible, they say. Just me and my Bible and God. That's all I need. Uh Uh-huh. And that's enough to, to keep them ignorant of the deeper truths of the Word of God and their senses dull for discerning the difference between what is moral and what is immoral, which is getting more difficult in our Western culture by the day. They have no idea of the two test- how the, new- the two testaments relate, whether there is more continuity between them or discontinuity between them, or that the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. They have no idea of the nature of progressive revelation and how it affects the way they interpret the Old Testament. Are there two peoples of God or only one? They don't know. How many Gospels are there? They're not sure. Nor... Have they any idea of the Old Testament concept of holy war and why it's so important for Christianity today? They are content to stay on the milk of the word and be blissfully ignorant of the deeper truths of God. And when they say, well, I just read my Bible, that's enough for me. They confuse simplicity with accuracy and will always be misled. Always. You ought to know that what I'm about to take you through is taught in our great confession, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. Of course, the framers of that confession took it from the Westminster Divines with a few modifications. Why is that so important? Why do we need to know that? Why are we even a confessional church? Well, if you know anything about the great Christian confessions, the Westminster Confession, the Baptist Confession, the Belgian Confession, 
Belgic Confession, the Augsburg Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and others, you know that they were all comprised, or composed rather, in a crucible of church persecution when the church was at a time where they had to define themselves. During the Great Reformation, the Reformers thought it was necessary that they all be on the same page as they speak out against the Catholic Church and as Catholicism persecuted them, and that they all be on the same page about what is truth, biblical truth. So they put down in writing what they believed as the essentials of the faith. And in all of them, without exception, is the teaching of this approach to studying the Bible, we are calling covenant theology. See how practical it is? People then needed to know what they believe and how and why. And so do we. And they've done the groundwork for us. So it's not something that belongs to the ivory tower for impersonal theologians to banter about in their stuffy suits who engage in some esoteric debate about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. No, what I'm talking to you about and what I'm going to show you, as I say, is the essence of our faith. It explains the Bible systematically, unfolds for us salvation history from Adam to Jesus. And it is what many confessional churches teach their children. The divines put it in the question form in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's all very practical, all very helpful, and you don't have to be a heavyweight theologian to grasp it. Now, let me repeat, people need a framework for understanding the Bible. When they have none, they are doomed to misinterpret the Scripture, misunderstand how God operates in their lives, and misunderstand the Christian faith. Perhaps just as bad, if not worse, than having no formal systematic approach to studying the Bible is to have a wrong one. There have been several approaches to studying the Bible since Pentecost, but they are all not created equal. Perhaps the most popular one, and of the most harmful, has been dispensationalism, from uh, founded rather by John Nelson Darby back in the early 1800s in the UK. It crossed over into America. It was embraced mostly by Baptists. A more modified form of it was popularized in America by people like D.L. Moody and then C.I. Schofield, who put out his own reference Bible to help Bible students approach the study of the Bible with his brand of dispensationalism. It is also decidedly Arminian. Just to get an idea of how popular it became, most Christians in America today, outside of confessional churches that hold to historic confessions of faith, are dispensational either devotedly or unknowingly to some degree. I was raised in it, and I have found it to have major problems, starting with the premise that there are seven stages of history or dispensations of time in human history in which the proponents believe God related to human beings differently. And while there is some truth certainly to stages in history, the seven that dispensationalism teaches are not defensible and as a result have introduced an intolerable discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. 
to the degree that they believe things like this. Two Gospels, two people of God, Israel and the Church, which are distinct and have nothing to do with each other or will, ne- will never have, even in heaven. That certain parts of Scripture were applicable only to Israel and never to the Church, and that there are two covenants, two new covenants, one for each group. Perhaps most damaging is the gross error it makes in separating Jesus' Savior from Jesus' Lord. That is, Jesus is only Savior to just believers and later becomes their Lord if they should decide on their own to be Jesus' followers. This essentially means that you can be a Christian and never follow Jesus, never produce one piece of fruit in your life. And you can see how important it is not only then to have an approach to studying the Bible, but to have a right one. Otherwise, it can be eternally fatal. One modern champion of dispensationalism even went so far as to say that you could denounce Jesus and still be saved so long as you made that profession of faith at some point in your life. I rest my case. Years later, since Schofield's approach, a more progressive approach was introduced in the 1980s. It is called progressive dispensationalism. Daryl Bach and Craig Blazing, two professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, modified the traditional dispensationalism. This all happened while, by the way, I was a student there. I remember when their book came out, the whole seminary was a buzz, and while there are some noticeable differences for the better, it is still a dispensational approach and it has many of the same shortcomings. Well, this is not a series on approaches to the Bible. So let me hasten to what I believe to be the better approach to studying the Bible. All right? It is the traditional view that the church has held for centuries and it goes by the name covenant theology. You think, you might be thinking, but, but that's a Presbyterian approach. Well, I can assure you that the Presbyterians do not corner the market on covenant theology. It is an approach that we Reformed Baptists champion too, albeit with some minor differences. The bottom line is, and this is really how you need to be thinking about this, The approach that our statement of faith supports, the 1689 Baptist Confession, and the one that is emphasized here at Pilgrim Church is the one that seeks to understand the Bible in terms of how God relates to humanity through covenants. Covenants show us how God relates in specific, often unique and binding ways to others. Now, there are several covenants that God made throughout history with men, and we'll look at them all briefly. They are all different. They all have different stipulations, different recipients. Some are conditional, some are unconditional. But they all are connected in the way that they contribute to God's salvation history. More on that as we go. It might be a good idea at this point to have a working definition of covenant. What is a covenant? It's a good question. There are a number of aspects of of a biblical covenant that come out of the Old and New Testament context. We 
when we talk about God making a covenant with his people, for example, we might understand three simple elements. There's more to a covenant than this, but these are three main elements to a covenant. One is this. There is unquestionably the idea of promise in all of them. A covenant is a promise. If we boil it all down, God makes a covenant, he makes a promise. It is a covenant promise. God's covenant is his solemn promise or determination to accomplish certain things for his people that he stipulates in his covenant with them. Number two, there is also the element of obligation. And this is not just on the part of the recipients. Specifically, God obligates himself in these promises to do for his people that which he promised. So you have promise, you have obligation. And number three, all of God's covenant promises are unbreakable promises. That means that God will never go back on his covenant promise. If, a pro, if, if God's covenant promises ever change, God changes it with another better covenant. But nothing can break his covenant promise. Now, the covenant that we begin with and devote the rest of our time this morning to, which is really f- flying by very quickly, is the heavenly covenant. I'm calling it a heavenly covenant. There's another name I'll give you in just a moment. This is not one that God makes with man. Rather, he made it with the second member of the Trinity in eternity past. Systematic theologians call this the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, there... There is a, there's great textual support for this, as I hope to show you in just a few moments. And, and while it's, it clearly shows that there is or was an agreement of sorts between the members of the Trinity to implement the redemption of a people, none of these texts ever mention the word covenant. Now, because of that fact, some theologians will not actually call this a covenant. But they want to maintain the fact that there was clearly an agreement within the Trinity to redeem a people, a determination to bring it about, how to do it, and which of the members of the Trinity would be responsible for what. So they refer to it as the eternal counsel of redemption instead of the covenant of redemption. Now just because the text doesn't use the word covenant doesn't mean that it's not speaking of one in other terms. We will see next time with the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 2 that this is the case. Covenant is not mentioned, but there is clearly an agreement God is making with Adam. More on that next time. This is also true of other teachings. For example, in Genesis 3, uh, you know that Moses never calls the serpent Satan, does he? No. In fact, Satan is never mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 at all. Did you know that? It's not there. But none of us have any problem understanding that it was Satan who tempted Eve, right? More than this, none of us have any problem going to the New Testament to inform our interpretation of Genesis 3. See why you need a sound approach to studying the Bible? Just to keep it simple, then, I'm referring to the agreement between the Trinitarian persons to bring about redemption 
as the covenant of redemption, a heavenly covenant. So let's examine it together, all right? Let's, let's really get into this. At a point in time in the past, and, and that sounds very strange to say, I know God is eternal and his thoughts and his actions were in some sense eternal as well. But for our human understanding, we talk about eternity past, and we can even talk about a point in the past in eternity. So, I say again that at a point in eternity past, God, God agreed in the perfect counsel of his will to redeem a people for himself by having the second member of the Trinity become man, shed his blood as a perfect substitute for those God would save, and for the third member of the Trinity to regenerate the hearts of these people. That is the eternal covenant of redemption, or the eternal counsel of redemption, whichever you prefer. It is an agreement. In other words, there was a perfect plan between the members of the Godhead to bring about redemption in this way. I want to prove this to you. First, we'll do it with Jesus' own comments on the matter. There's quite a bit that Jesus says regarding the covenant that he and the Father made together for salvation of the elect, but a few samples from the Gospel of John, I think, will do. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus says this, My food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, you know, Jesus told his disciples this during that historic moment at the well where he evangelized the Samaritan woman and then later the Samaritan people, which was, of course, part of that work that the Father had commissioned him to do. Jesus is talking about saving God's people. According to the verse, the will of the Father came first, obviously. Then came the commissioning of the Son, and then sending the Son into the world to accomplish this work. And Jesus greatly desired to finish this work that God commissioned him to do. So what was this work exactly that was planned in eternity and implemented in history? We go a little bit farther to John chapter 6. In verses 38 to 40, we read this, Jesus speaking, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everything he has given me I will lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. There is no mistaking the kind of work that Jesus was commissioned to do. Save those that God gave to him. There is no mistaking the fact that Jesus speaks of a plan that he and the Father or God the Father, had established before Christ came to earth in the form of a man. Clearly, then, in eternity past, God chose a people for himself that he planned on giving to the Son, whom the Son would then redeem by his redemptive work on earth so that they would be with him forever in heaven. Now, I, uh, turn ahead to John 10. John 10, verses 27 to 30, Jesus speaking, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In this case, when Jesus speaks of the Father giving him his people to save, he is alluding to the Father's eternal decree to make this so by appointing Jesus to be their shepherd who would lay down his life for them. Finally, with Jesus' words, finally, John 17. This is the great high priestly prayer. Jesus reminisces over his special relationship that he enjoyed with his Father before the incarnation and the eternal covenant that was made. Notice as I read the text several references to a people who belong to God that Jesus gave eternal life to and then received them as a gift from the Father. Beginning at verse 1, John 17. Jesus spoke these things, and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, and the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. Of course, that's in heaven. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory uh, which I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have followed your word. Now they have come to know that everything which you have given me is from you, for the words which you, have, which you gave me I gave to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on the behalf of those whom you have given me because they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have been glorified in them. I think most of that is self-explanatory. You don't have to really... Uh, get into that, it's obvious that, that God had a people in mind in eternity past that he decreed to save through and by means of the Son and would give them to the Son. And this is what we read in John 17. Now the covenant of redemption that God determined to bring about through the shed blood of Christ is also well attested in the epistles. Just a Again, a few here will do. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 9 show us <clears throat> a bit of this covenant being enacted by Christ as he agreed to humble himself and take on human flesh. Christ Jesus, who as, uh, who, uh, uh, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. 
This is what happened in heaven. Jesus begins to enact the covenant of redemption. Then there is 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul says, Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It was granted to you back in eternity past. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal purpose, eternal counsel. This is the counsel of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, But with precious blood, as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Interesting. Did you ever know that Christ was foreknown? The reference to Christ being foreknown is in regard to his redemptive work. God planned this out with Christ before the foundation of the world. And you know that Peter, we heard it read in our scripture reading for this morning, even Peter preached God's predetermined plan for Christ to the Jews on Pentecost in Acts 2. That's what he's talking about. Finally, one last passage, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. All who live on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world, that's eternity past, in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb, that's Christ, who has been slaughtered. Can you see the themes? I don't think it's a reach. I don't think it's a stretch. In eternity past, God planned the redemption of sinners through Jesus Christ. Well, we have mentioned that God's will in heaven is meted out on earth, right? We've said that already at the beginning. We said that. And, and that this should be part of, of what we pray for. Well, what we have seen Jesus accomplish by way of redemption for the lost fold of God is nothing other than that which God decided to do in eternity. In other words, one systematic theologian puts it this way. When Scripture describes Christ's person and redemptive work in history, it portrays exactly what God predetermined in eternity about Christ our Redeemer. End quote. Isn't this interesting? I wonder if you've, er, you ever, if you've ever thought about this. Did you even know that there was a covenant of redemption that God made with Jesus in eternity past? How wonderful is it, is it to think that before the creation of the universe, God made this covenant with the Son of God. It tells us that God had a redemptive plan. He set it in stone, and it is the basis for everything that he does in human history. Everything. This is why it is the essence of, of our faith. He is about fulfilling this covenant of redemption even now. This is the heavenly covenant to which I refer, and we are going to see exactly how this heavenly covenant works out historically in what I call the lesser covenants that God made with men throughout the Bible. More on that later. But I want to draw this to a close with some practical import, some practical 
study to close this morning with just a few, uh, three really, three or four applications. What does it do for us to know about the covenant of redemption? Is it just a fact? Is it something that that uh, that makes us a little bit more knowledgeable so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm getting closer to that ivory tower? No, no, of course not. I have... I've found Greg Nichols' three practical and experiential applications to be as good as any, so I'm going to borrow them from his Systematic Theology. This comes from his Lectures in Systematic Theology, Volume 3, The Doctrine of Christ. Number one, this covenant of redemption is a solid foundation for all Christian confidence. Where does your confidence lay? Simply put, he says, quote, it secures the eternal welfare of God's elect, it makes absolute certain the final salvation of everyone the Father entrusts to his Son before the foundation of the world. What Nichols is getting at is that we Christians have God's word, not only that we, that we will be saved for all eternity, but that we can never lose that privilege granted to us by God's grace alone. Never. Nothing can thwart God's plans, including the one that will save us for all eternity. I think this is especially timely for we Americans who happen to have all our rights and legitimate pursuits threatened of late by a corrupt government that we can seemingly do nothing about. The Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights are extremely important documents to American life, perhaps the most important articles of men that we have. They define who we are and how we operate as American citizens. You, you can imagine what happens to our lives and our identities when these two important documents are ignored or reinterpreted to mean something unintended by the Founding Fathers. Actually, we, we don't have to imagine that. We're experiencing the fallout of, 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 of a blatant disregard for them right now. Right of citizenship is dissolving. We have no representation before national leaders. The power is taken from the people and put into the hands of a small and corrupt elite that is able to rise above the law, but hinders our most basic pursuits. They manipulate these documents to push their agenda. And if that is left to continue, life in our country will become harsh and intolerable, just like communist countries of the Cold War that some of us remember. Thankfully, Christians are impervious to that fallout. Oh, they may be subject to it, but it's not what ultimately affects their contentment, their identity, and their goals in life. No matter how harsh life gets, we are among the redeemed of a people that God predetermined before the foundations of the world should be with him forever. We are among those God determined in eternity past to save. We are the living results of divine will, and no human government and no human condition can ever change that. Please remember that, should things go from bad to worse. Number two, the covenant of redemption affords, affords much fuel for grateful praise to the Trinity. If I tell you that happiness, joy, and thankfulness should characterize Christians, you can understand why I say that. 
God so loved us that he gave his son to die for us, to save us, and to secure a place for us in heaven. He entrusted us to his son who will forever shepherd us. With that good news, the best in fact, what is there to move you? Illness, disease, paralysis perhaps, persecution, poverty? Or how about Paul's list in Romans 8? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty powerful. Are you thankful? You should be. Have you have that deep and abiding joy? Are you content in Christ for what he planned out in eternity past and historically came and fulfilled at his own life for your sake? Are you content? You may not see joy, happiness, and thankfulness characterized in the lives of Christians that you know, and maybe you're not characterized quite that way either. And if that's the case, I would argue that you and those like you have not grasped the true meaning of God's saving love for you. There is nothing better, nothing more life-changing, nothing more secure, and nothing more precious than the saving love of Christ. Number three, Nichols says that this covenant of redemption, quote, calls Christians to imitate Christ's gracious gracious deference. That's respect. Paul's word to us in Philippians 2.5 is to have the same mind as Christ, who, who who, who has deference to the Father, or in deference to the Father, submitted to the incarnation and to a cruel death. This was all within the Godhead, in the context of the covenant of redemption, when he did this. So we, therefore, need to rid ourselves of selfishness if we value this covenant, consider the needs of others in the body as more important than our own, living for others out of obedience to Christ. Three important applications. There are more, but we're out of time. Next time, how this covenant of redemption works out historically in the covenants God made with men. Father, we thank you for this time.